Hey there, welcome to Sass Unbound, brought to you by Sass Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today, I'm super excited to welcome uh, Dirk Selmer to the podcast, our own head of origination at Sass Group. Welcome, Dirk. Yeah, thanks, Anna, for finally inviting me. Glad to be on the yeah. pod. You asked so many times, you know, I couldn't say no, it's Christmas. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, super happy to, to talk to you about all things uh, M&A. So first things first, I think uh, let's just start with market trends and like what's going on because 2023 has been a bit turbulent and, you know, LinkedIn is buzzing with posts about valuations going down and uh, founders who don't want to sell and businesses going down. Uh, so what's your take on it? Like, what's the real situation? Is actually something happening uh, dramatically different from the last year? And where do you see it all going? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And it's also a question I get asked by a lot of founders now. It's not all as bad as everyone thinks, I, uh, I would say. So in general, I definitely say in terms of M&A, it's, it's currently a buyer's market. Yes, there's some like pressure. I mean, VC funding is going down. Everything is going more towards profitability, more efficiency, etc. Um, and multiples, of course, were affected in the pu public market as well as in the, in the private market. Um, but I, I just saw a chart yesterday where they showed the median multiple since I think 2005, 2006. And yeah, our multiple. And it has always been in the five-ish region. Um, and so we're also now back to the five-ish region. And that's why I don't think it's that bad. Uh, and I also don't think it will like significantly change in the near future. So if founders were looking for an exit, I think it wouldn't make much sense to now postpone it for two, three years in the hope that it will become better. Okay, that makes sense. So businesses are selling, right? So uh, Acquire.com has announced that I think they have like $500 million in deals this year alone. So Flippa mm -hmm. is growing, right? They just bought bits for digits, uh, another marketplace where you could sell your SaaS company. So it's it's going right no, nothing has stopped in 2023 so if founders are looking for ways to sell their company uh what is kind of the most logical maybe the easiest way to go is it the marketplace or you know if you want a bit more personal touch to it you should go without a broker and just approach companies that are you know strategically aligned with you or better yet culturally aligned yeah, I think like the most important uh, point to consider here is that actually you you are selling to a person or uh, a, a couple of persons, so it's it's still a, a people's game. And so even though you might not be looking for an exit in the near future, it always makes sense to keep the contact details of buyers that approach you on the way or strategic acquirers you think are suitable for you or an appropriate exit channel. Uh, so I think like relationship building starts early and you need to gain trust and people need to understand your product. And so this even starts you before you're actively considering an exit. And um, if you're going for an exit, I think it depends a lot on like the type of business, the size and so on. So if you have like a, a small indie hacker project, uh, I think a marketplace is is the way to go. 
because this helps you getting in front of a lot of interested people at the same time. And this goes from maybe smaller strategic acquirers to like just one person interested in acquiring a hobby project. And so, yeah, I, I think it's best to list your business on, on acquire, flipper and, and how you are called. Um, there are quite a lot of them. If it's a bigger business with a complex org structure, and I'm talking about businesses with maybe 50, 100 plus people, I think it definitely makes sense to hire an advisor. Uh, and have a structured process. They can help you like prepare everything um, and they will get you in front of the, the buyers that may, may be most suitable. And I think it also makes sense to uh, just benefit from that competitive aspect of a structured process uh, because then you have multiple parties and you may get a higher price. And then there's like something in between. I think that's also the businesses uh, we are looking at. I mean, an advisor is also like it costs money at the end of the day. So you should know yourself if it's worth it or not. Uh, but if your company is kind of a mess uh, and you don't know what to expect, it definitely makes sense to talk to an advisor and involve one. If you say, okay, I would just reach out maybe two, three buyers uh, that look good in my opinion and that like might be interested in buying my business. And uh, one of them puts an offer and the deal goes uh, through smooth. Then you can save yourself a few hundred K maybe on, on advisor costs. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think like if you run a process on your own as a, as a founder, it can be quite distracting, but if you just have like a, a handful of conversations in parallel, I think that's, that's still doable. Okay. So it's a lot of communication and a lot of relationship building, uh, from starting from early on, starting from just, uh, the thought of maybe someday selling your business. So do you have any tips, hacks for effective communication with potential acquirers? Yeah. So one, I just said, start early to have these conversations and don't reply rude, even though you may find it annoying if, if a buyer approaches you early. Uh, so rather have that conversation, spend 30 minutes to talk to them and then keep the contact details. Yeah. And, and, um, pick it up once it becomes relevant. Um, and then I think like transparency is key and this doesn't only apply on like metrics and numbers. So how's your churn, how's your growth, et cetera, et cetera, the, the main KPIs, but also about your preferences. So I think I still talk to a lot of founders that say, yeah, I don't know what to expect. I also don't know what preferences I have. Uh, if the offer is good, I would be interested in staying. If the offer is bad, I would be happy to leave. So it's like, I think your gut feeling tells you what you're looking for. Um, if you're close to burnout and you want to get out, then tell the buyer you want to get out. If you say, Hey, I'm just struggling to further scale the business and I need a partner, but I'd be happy to be part of the journey going forward. Then also tell the founder because the buyer, because only then the buyer can potentially offer you the package you, you're desiring. Exactly. And, okay. um, yeah, I think like the, the, the whole transparency aspect is valid throughout the whole process. And of course also post acquisition. Um, so the more transparent you are, the more trust you build and the better it's like for potential, uh, collaboration. Right. Okay. But let's get, uh, let's get down to, to business and to the metrics and KPIs, right? Mm -hmm. that, that because it's not just a conversation, it's, it's also about the way you've structured your operations over the years, uh, digging the old 
contracts, the legacy customers, and there, there's a lot of things to deal with during the uh, due diligence. So let's not talk about due diligence maybe just yet, but th those first kind of bits of communication, like what do potential acquirers uh, ask from uh, from the sellers and what how do they uh, expect it to be presented to them? Yeah, a good question. That's also something uh, what some founders are doing wrong. I can only speak for myself, but uh, we are asking for uh, financial statements in the first step, um, historic financial statements uh, of the last few years and historic KPIs, which means custom and revenue movements. Uh, some founders tend to just send us a presentation with the KPIs like LTV to CAC or whatever it is. Uh, but actually we prefer to calculate it ourselves to see if it's correct, uh, rather than just trusting the numbers we get sent. Um, and so custom and revenue movements, like you would get it out of, of Chartmoco and other revenue analytics, uh, platforms. That's, that's what we are looking for. Uh, and this already helps us to give you like a rough price indication. And uh, the more you can share, the better. Uh, and I think it's also, uh, crucial that you like are able to send it right away. Uh, so I think it's already kind of a negative bias. Um, if we ask for numbers and um, the seller says, "Okay, I can get you to get, uh, I can get this together in like two, three weeks," uh, that's not a good sign because this is already an indication that the the whole business might be a, a mess. And only after signing an NDA, that's your favorite. Uh, yes, yeah, that's that's my favorite. Uh, I mean. At the end of the day, NDAs are quite weak, in my opinion. Um, and I wouldn't recommend founders uh, that are trying to raise money from investors. Um, yeah, uh, insisting on an NDA, but I think for M&A process, it totally makes sense. And uh, yeah, they are free to share numbers. But uh, I think a lot of uh, founders are also quite quite transparent, even without an NDA. And that's, that's fine. I mean, uh, we're also playing with our reputation here. so. Uh, we do not intend to, to share any data with people outside or with, with anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, we had, a we had a podcast with one of the founders that sold to, to South group just recently. And, uh, that's mm -hmm. what, uh, he told me about, like at first, when we asked for a ton of information about the customers, um, they were a bit worried, of course, like what, like, is it safe to, to give yeah. out that information and to show it to us? But then of course they realized that, you know, if we do something with it, uh, it's, you know, we're over, right. Uh, it's our trust, uh, from the founders, it's our reputation. And of course, like no one's going to, um, risk that just to, you know, to, to get something out of that data. All right. Yeah, I just just want to say that a lot of founders are pushing for an NDA even before having the initial call. Um, and I just want to say that this is not meant as an interrogation. So it's just like a casual call to hear more about your preferences, the current state of the company, and not necessarily fishing for metrics. So um, you shouldn't be too worried about the initial call. And uh, I think there's no need to sign an NDA before. Right. Okay. So, uh, one, one thing that I wanted to ask is, you know, benchmarks and just a North star metric that, uh, a lot of founders are really worried about, right? So they are not really sure 
like what acquirers are looking for, like what are the numbers that we're aiming for, uh, what were the numbers, um, the other companies that we or any other acquirer that bought a company had, right? And it's quite confusing. And um, I just read, I think yesterday, you posted this um, post to the news that instead of rule of 40, uh, which we kind of all came to to peace with, right? And we use uh, a lot at Taz Group, uh, there is now rule of acts, right? So it's the whole like mm -hmm. M&A, the, the whole acquisition uh, game is kind of becoming a bit more fluid, right? And uh, we're introducing some new metrics, new benchmarks. So I think for founders, it's like added pressure. So first thing that I wanted to ask is why we at Sauce Group and a lot of acquirers out there are so serious about the rule of 40. And then what is the rule of X and how the change and in this introduction is going to, you know, impact the founders and the whole acquisition? Yeah, I think like, let's first maybe on that question with, with like the rule of 40 and what, what we are looking for. So if you go like to the top three valuation drivers, it's like growth still, um, quality of revenue, which means like retention, uh, are you getting more out of your clients over time or less? And how long are they staying? And um, the third most important factor is efficiency. Uh, so can your business actually make money and how much money can it make while still growing? Um, and this is an important aspect, especially for smaller businesses. And um, maybe also commenting on the rule of, of X. Uh, it was introduced by, by Bessemer Venture Partners a, a couple of days ago. And... Um, yeah, their reasoning was that especially late stage companies and public companies growth is, is higher valued or has a higher impact on, on valuation than, um, the free cash flow or the, the profit margin at the end of the day, uh, because for them, it's even harder to grow. And if they manage to maintain a certain growth rate, it's usually, um, impacting the valuation stronger than, than the profit margin. However, uh, the rule of 40, like the conventional rule of 40, which means growth rate plus profit margin, uh, is, I would say, still applicable to most SaaS businesses, um, especially the ones in, in, in my personal network. Uh, so I think you don't have to be worried or think you need to apply the rule of X to your 3 million AR company. So I would say like rule of 40 is still um, the important aspect. And also for buyers, I, I think in lower AR region, there are the, the vast majority of buyers are more financially oriented and less strategic. Uh, so there's no Microsoft buying 1 million AR companies. And that's why it's even more important that your company is capable of producing cash, basically, uh, because buyers need to refinance your deal somehow. And I mean, that's a, an oversimplification just to mention that, but, um, like buyers want to get certain returns uh, on their investment and it's usually uh, private equity players uh, or buyers are calculating with a two to three X their money in, in five to 10 years. Um, and you can either do that by increasing the valuation over the holding period, because you have these nice tweaks to improve marketing pricing and so on. So the company maybe grows faster is, is more profitable or, or both. Uh, and that's why you can sell it for a higher price down the road. Um, or you get the money back through cash flow, uh, And then it can also be a combination of both. Um, 
And that's what you should look for. So if your company is neither growing nor profitable, uh, I think that's a very bad sign. And also if it's not growing, um, yeah, or if it's not growing, you should look more at profitability. And if you're able to grow, you should also take a look at, at efficiency if you can grow sustainably. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course, rewardful.com course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you, Dirk. So uh, maybe we can uh, now talk a little bit more about SaaS Group itself, right? And how we operate and what we're looking at, because we've also been introducing a bit of a new vision this uh, this last year and not, um, not anymore looking just at bootstrap companies. So how has it been going and like, what's the deal now? What are the companies that SaaS Group um, wants to acquire? Yeah, I think there's a, a good and a, and a bad thing uh, or a bad aspect to it. On, on the one hand, we say we are flexible and so we can accommodate to more company structures and to more sorts of, of SaaS businesses. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you can also argue that we lack a clear vision because um, we have that flexibility. So I would say it's also uh, driven by the market currently that a lot of VC funded companies that raised big rounds in 2020, 2021 are not getting any more funding and we could potentially help them clean up the cap table, set them on a sustainable foundation and like help them grow from there. Uh, and so the founders can still get the exit they deserve, even though they might have raised a couple of million and would not get a lot from the exit due to liquidation preference and other terms. Um, and we've done a, a couple of deals this year. I mean, mentioning Zenloop here, which we bought off out of insolvency, uh, and a few other ones I would put into the yeah, kind of distressed uh, bucket, uh, even though um, I, I think distressed might not be the right word. So yeah, uh, more VC funded companies. Um, and then we were also in the past more looking for PLG companies and, um, now we became more open to also look at, at more enterprisey companies that require a sales motion to acquire new clients and where it also takes maybe a few weeks to months to acquire new clients. I think like heavy enterprise sales, talking about sales cycles of a year or longer are still not a good fit for us. But if it's maybe a couple of months and it, and it's working and it's growing, um, they could still be a fit for us and. We still keep the horizontal focus, so we wouldn't buy any, any vertical niche businesses yet. But yeah, that's why it, it looks like we, we broaden the scope a bit. And it's good for us because, um, yeah, a, 
I would say like it's not either bootstrapped or VC funded. So I, I think you can deviate from your original plan uh, and you can switch lanes. And um, I think a lot of VC funded companies have a great product. They have a great company. They have a great culture. They just don't fit that framework anymore. And I think instead of just like bleeding out or, or filing for insolvency, there's a, a chance to like reset the company and grow it from there again. And that's what we, we now have proven with some cases at, at SaaS Group. And I think there's an opportunity to maybe add a few more next year. That's wonderful. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, a couple more questions about just the operational side of, of uh, acquiring companies at SaaS Group. So we've been kind of um, successfully acquiring companies fairly quickly. So like the due diligence uh, that we mm -hmm. usually promise is about like six eight to eight weeks and again talking to some of the founders that that uh joined size group just recently that kind of proves the case right so uh why did you decide that this is going to be something that you know that is important for founders that's going to dif differentiate size group uh from the rest of the acquirers in the first place and how do you achieve that Right, because well, as as far as we can see in the M and A space, a lot of deals are being dragged for for months and months. And I mean, we've heard um, some of the due diligences go on for like six, eight months. Uh, so, what do we do different? And yeah, what was the reason to do it in the first place? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, it's it's one of our USPs, and and that's why we we try to. Uh implemented and it works. I, I think it's now very streamlined. Everyone knows what to do at which point. Uh, and that's how, how we can be so fast. So it's a, a well-oiled machine. We are still a very small and productive team. So just five people in the M&A team. And yeah, I, I think that a lot of strategic acquirers can just not keep up with that because they have their processes. They have like, they need to get approval uh, maybe from, from certain parties. Um, and they're just not used to, uh, yeah, let's call it deal making. Uh, so they may do one acquisition per year, or it may be their first one or, uh, whatever. Um, and so it just takes longer. It's very bureaucratic or it tends to be bureaucratic. And, um, I heard quite a lot of, excuse my French fuck up stories from founders that went, uh, through a process due diligence for one year. And um, in the meantime, the buyer had like a strategic change and it just bailed out uh, without paying a termination fee or so. And um, then founders are quite hesitant to kick off a new process and just need to uh, need some time to recover. And that's for me, that's that's um, yeah sad to hear uh, because this is not how it should be. Uh, I mean, it could always be that you find a red flag or there's some disagreement or whatever, uh, but yeah, I think we've proven that we can be fast and that like the M&A process in general can be fast. Um, but it's also, I mean, you have to admit it's our bread and butter. Um, so we did six deals um, this year. Uh, we're aiming for more next year. And so, yeah, we should kind of know, know what to do. Now. And I think also an important question is like alignment in the first place. So I think what we need to figure out in the, very early phase of the process is do we align on like the price? Do we align on the deal structure, uh, et cetera. And if you can get this alignment first 
and then start a real due diligence where you just dig deeper and take a look at, at everything. Uh, I think that significantly increases the chances of ultimately signing a deal. Uh, because if you just like, I don't know, put an offer and you're trying to retrade during the process and you're not really aligned and you don't even know what, how to structure the deal, I think then it becomes difficult and that's where we um, have an advantage. Okay. All right. Well, it's great that you mentioned alignment because again, something that we actively talk about is cultural alignment, right? And uh, recently I've been noticing that uh, more and more uh, acquirers are talking about that. So why is it that important if you're buying a company and basically, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want with it? Uh, why cultural alignment is still such a big deal both for the acquirer and the seller. Yeah, I mean, uh, since you are uh, going on a long journey together, uh, I think if there's no no culture fit, uh, it might only lead to issues down the road. Um, and to give you a, a concrete example without dropping any names here, but I recently talked to a founder and he sold for, yeah, an okayish price uh, to strategic. So it was way better uh, what we could potentially offer. But now they're just not happy. Um, I mean, the, the choir is not doing well um, themselves. And so they're also kind of neglecting um, the acquired assets. And uh, it was also a US acquirer and um, the seller was a, a European uh, SaaS company. And so um, just a simple example, they have all their management calls late at night because it's in the afternoon US times. And so it's late at night in, in European times. And everyone is struggling with it because, of course, you may want to bring your kids to bed instead of um, hanging on a, on a management call. And so it's the small things. But at the end of the day, I think um, these are important factors um, that decide whether it's a cultural fit or not. And um, also maybe simple things like working times. Do you have a strong office culture versus a remote structure and so on? And so I think as a founder, you should really like, I mean, you, you cannot foresee it and the, the buyer can tell you whatever they want. Uh, but I think you need to collect as much proof points as possible to see that it's aligned because we as the buyer are doing basically the same. Um, and I mean, it depends whether the founder stays on board for longer or not, but, uh, also if, if it's just the rest of the team or the management, uh, it's still important that you are looking for a good new home where, where values are aligned. And um, there are like some things you can overcome, like the mentioned remote versus office culture. Um, so we, for example, uh, prefer to stay remote and don't have any physical offices, locations uh, where people go. But if the rest... Like if all the other boxes are ticked, I think we can talk about it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's like, if you talk to other buyers, they tend to say there's always a number. So you, you can pay a high price and then founders may not care a lot about the rest. And this may true to a certain extent, but I think at the end of the day, it's a very important factor in my opinion, uh, and can decide or determine whether a founder decides to sell the business to you or to someone else. Yeah, I agree. I think it was one of my first seminate calls with you and another founder when uh, 
they said we actually went to like to do your LinkedIn and to your website uh, and saw like the videos and the photos of the team and like what you were talking about and we wanted to make sure that our team if we leave is going to be happy with you guys and uh, that was really fascinating to to learn that you know even even if the founder is leaving you know it's been their home uh, for so long that they still want yeah. the team to succeed and be happy. So that's wonderful. Yeah, there's there's uh, another example. Uh, just like two days ago, uh, I got like a standard response from a founder saying, hey, we're not looking for an exit. We are focusing on, on growing the business, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then just maybe 10, 15 minutes later, he wrote, okay, just looked at your website. Uh, looks great what you're working on at SaaS Group. Uh, let's maybe still have a chat to get to know each other. And so... I mean, it's just the website, it's just the content we are producing. And uh, of course, a website um, can also be misleading, um, but I think it's a, it's a good sign. Uh, and I think we are quite honest on our website, how our projects and how it is uh, to work together. And you can like read the blog posts, uh, listen to your podcast with the founders that have sold to us. Um, and yeah, look at all the things we do. Uh, and I think it gives a pretty good impression. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely very important. All right, so uh, maybe just a couple more questions. Uh, so first is, uh, in your personal experience and in your personal opinion, what would be like the best way, the most you know streamlined, the most transparent way for the founders to get ready for the first contact with a potential acquirer to make sure you know it may not lead to success uh like right away where they may not be looking for this um for the sale but you know down the road they have the relationship that could lead to uh, a successful acquisition yeah it's it's a good question um and something to mention here i i heard that from from a vc investor they they were in talk with one of their portfolio companies because they were open to an exit but not actively pushing for it and so they prepared the data room and they just updated it every month. And so they had like actual numbers, actual documents and everything in there uh, with an update on KPIs, financials and so on. And so I don't know if you should do it monthly if uh, you still think an exit is like far off, but I think once you're getting into a zone where this might become relevant, I think that's like a great idea uh, because if you're getting approached or uh, if you're getting in touch uh, with a buyer somewhere, you can just say, hey, here are the numbers. I give you access. Let's sign an NDA and you can look at it. And even if it's a no for the time being, they know where you stand. And um, like if it becomes more concrete for you, you can share an update. And best case scenario, your, your numbers have improved by then. So I think it's just good. It's, it also builds on that trust factor uh, because... Like the more you're sharing um, and the more transparent you are and the more uh, potential buyers get to know you over time, um, the better it is. And um, yeah, then I think it's it's also like your task to filter out the buyers that are suitable for you uh, based on the preferences you have. So if your ultimate goal is to sell for a steep multiple and you don't care about anything else, then maybe start building relationships with strategic acquirers. Um, if other factors are equally important, like your team has a good new home um, and um, your brand lives on because um, the buyer would take your company as is like like we do, 
Um, then some other buyers may land on your list. Um, and then just, yeah, uh, reach out to them via email, try to engage with them on events, get in touch with them through LinkedIn. So there are different channels. Then once it becomes relevant, you, you have like that relationship and the trust, a certain level of trust already. And it makes things so much easier and it really significantly increases your, your chances of getting the offer and, and getting the, the exit you deserve or you, you want to, to get. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Dirk. And about the data room, uh, we may be able to, to help with this and drop something for the founders uh, to make sure they have an opportunity to track their KPIs and, and keep the, the investors or the acquirers in the loop uh, very soon. So stay tuned, we will announce it. Uh, but yeah, the last question is obviously, you know, you're the head of origination, everyone knows you uh, in an M&A space and so many SaaS founders are looking at your content. So uh, what would be the best way to reach out if they actually want to sell a company? Yeah, so I would normally say LinkedIn, but my LinkedIn inbox is a mess and I cannot really keep up with it. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's also a lot of spam or just people dropping me a message. Hey, a great post. Um, and so there's no real need to respond and then it, it easily gets messy, but the best way is, is email. So I'm, I'm an email person. So feel free to reach out via Dirk at, at SaaS group, or of course also to, to Anna or, or anyone else of my team. Um, so now I have a great new colleague, uh, Leo, uh, you can also reach out to, to Leo at SaaS group. Um, or Richards. Uh, so I think if you want to get in touch, you will find someone uh, who points in the right direction. Right. Absolutely. Actively reach out, actively network. Uh, we have a forum on the website as well. So uh, we'll see you there. Well, thank you, Dirk, so much for all the insights. I mean, it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, and yeah, hopefully I'll see more of the great content from you on LinkedIn and everywhere else. And uh, yeah, we will do another video where Dirk will explain some of the formulas and metrics and KPIs that are relevant for SaaS founders. So yeah, like I said, stay, stay tuned. We'll uh, get back to you with more. So thank you, Dirk, for being here. Yes. Yeah, so thanks for having me. So glad we, we finally made it and yeah, looking yeah. forward to, to the separate session about the KPIs. Sure. Thank you and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.